Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 13. As we continue on towards the conclusion of this great portion of Scripture, in Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 16. I'm going to begin by reading the text for us. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. Verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God." Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray now. Father, we thank You for Your Word that is inspired by Your Holy Spirit, given to us, Father, without error, every single part for our good. We praise You, God, that You have revealed Yourself to us and that You've given us the Scriptures. We ask now that You would open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear what You have spoken to us in Your Word, in the person of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, We pray that You would work faith in us today, that You would strengthen us, that You would magnify Your Son in us, Father, and then through us. We pray that You would build Your church by Your Word. Father, give me grace to speak things that are true and accurate in accords with the Scriptures. Give Your people discernment, God, that we might not be led astray, but hold fast unto the end. We pray these things, Father, confident that You hear us. In Jesus' name, Amen. There are some passages in Scripture, some verses in Scripture, that so powerfully ring out with truth, they cannot be ignored. As a church, we certainly believe all Scripture is God-breathed and therefore profitable to us, but there are some verses that seem uniquely powerful in their statement of truth. Like a lighthouse that pierces the fog, these verses are able to cut through the noise and demand our attention. I think, for example, of a text like Isaiah 45.5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Or Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Or Romans 9.18. So then, God has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills wills. You may not remember much else from those chapters, but you will remember those verses. 
They ring out with truth. And like that fog-piercing lighthouse, their truth is nearly inescapable. You can't ignore them even if you want to. Our passage today in Hebrews 13 has one such verse. The entire text is helpful and rich with life-giving exhortation, but there is one verse in particular that rings out and demands our attention. It's verse 8. Listen again to what the author says. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That, friends, is a clear, compelling statement of the Lord Jesus' supremacy. In one sentence, the author of Hebrews has summarized the essential message of this book. Jesus Christ is the unchanging, eternal, all-powerful Son of God. And what He accomplished through His death will never fade away. Verse 8 is declaring to us once more that there is no one like the Lord Jesus Christ. He has no rivals For all who would rival Him are subject to time and to decay. But this Christ endures forever. Consider, friends, just for a moment, the scope of Jesus' supremacy on display in this one verse. Just verse 8. Consider the fact that Jesus is the same yesterday. The emphasis is on His cross What Jesus accomplished in the past at Calvary remains effective for all time. And His blood shed on that tree saves God's people to the uttermost. Yesterday is not simply past time that has no bearing on the present. Yesterday is the realm of Jesus' blood. It is the realm of His cross. And its power endures to today. He is the same yesterday. Consider also that Jesus is the same today. Here the focus is on His ongoing ministry. He is the great High Priest. And right now, today, He intercedes for His people. He prays on your behalf today. He pleads His own blood before the Father for the continued cleansing of His people. Every time the sun rises and we face another today, we do so with the comfort of Jesus' ongoing ministry. There is never a moment in the Christian life when your need will surpass Jesus' mercy. He is the same today. And consider that Jesus is the same forever with the emphasis on His eternal reign. When Jesus crushed death at His resurrection and then ascended again to the Father's right hand, He took His rightful position on the throne. But Jesus' throne is not an earthly power that can be toppled. His throne is that of the universe. Kingdoms rise and fall. Nations prosper and fall into ruin. But the kingdom of Christ has no end. The Lord Jesus is the same forever. Past, present, future. The Lord Jesus is the same, and therefore, He is supreme. Brothers and sisters, there is no one like Him. We will say a lot more about this passage today, but of all the things that I'm going to say, this is the most important. Jesus Christ will never change. His work will never fade. His reign will never end. And therefore, your life must be defined in relationship to Him. To go through your life without regard for this supreme Christ is to waste your life on things that cannot compare to Him. 
So behold Him in His glory this morning, brothers and sisters. Don't leave church today without pleading for God to open your eyes to see the supremacy and the glory of Christ. Right now, pray and beg God to give you sight. This is the most important thing for us to see. Ask God to shine the light of Christ like that lighthouse that cuts through the fog. It's not rhetorical. I mean it. Pray right now that God would give you sight. Oh, how burdened and desperate we should be to see this Jesus. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's only one verse, but what a powerful verse it is. It grabs your attention and it demands that we fix our eyes once more on this unrivaled, eternal, unchanging Christ. Still, even as we behold this one incredible verse, we must also recognize that it does not stand on its own. It does not stand on its own. Verse 8 is striking, to be sure. It is powerful and attention-grabbing, but it does not come to us in isolation. It comes in the context of an entire passage. Friends, it's vital for us to see this if verse 8 is to have its full effect on our lives. You see, the author of Hebrews does not write verse 8 as though it were an abstract statement of truth. I know when we're reading it, verse 8 just kind of seems like it's hanging out there like, hey, what is, what is this doing here? But he writes this verse as part of a series of instructions, as part of his teaching for how we are to live as Christians in the world. It comes right in the midst of that. I mean, you heard it earlier when we read. Verse 7 talks about leaders and the example that they set. Verse 9 mentions being on guard against false teaching. Verse 13 is the cost of discipleship. And verse 15 mentions pleasing service to God. All of those issues are integrally related to the Christian life. And that's the point. The author is continuing to teach us how to live as God's people. And here, right in the middle of that practical teaching, we find the powerful statement of Jesus' supremacy. In verse 8. Do you see the connection? You you have to see the connection in order to, to get the full effect of the passage. The supremacy of Christ, the glory of Jesus, is not some dry, isolated theological idea. The glory of Christ matters for how you live today as a Christian. If it doesn't matter for how you live today as a Christian, then you don't understand His glory. His supremacy should shape your perspective on the Christian life. It should inform and encourage your devotion to Him. If that's not how we understand the supremacy of Christ, then we don't know Him as we ought. The truth has not taken hold of our lives as firmly as it should. This is why it's so frustrating to me when people say things like, I'm not really interested in doctrine. Well, then you're not interested in the Bible. You're not interested in being a Christian. Truth is meant to live. That's why verse 8 just shows up in the middle of the instructions. Because without it, we're not doing those instructions. It's connected for how we should live day in and day out as followers of Christ. So, in light of that connection, here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to answer just one question. How can we live in a way that reflects the incredible reality of verse 8? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So how should we live so as to reflect that truth? 
Your neighbors aren't reading Hebrews 13, but they're watching you. So how should we live in a way that reflects that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever? That's our question. And in God's kindness, this passage answers in four Christ-exalting ways. Four Christ-exalting ways. The first is found in verse 7, where the author calls us to Christ-exalting imitation. Christ-exalting imitation. You'll notice in verse 7, the author urges his readers to remember their leaders, those who spoke the Word of God to them. Most likely, the leaders in view here are not the current leaders of the congregation. They show up later in verses 17 and 24. Notice how the author says, remember them. The implication is that they're no longer present. And then notice that he says, consider the outcome of their life. That word outcome has a sense of finality, as though these leaders have already finished their race, and the outcome or the result of their life could be observed. So when you put these things together, you get a better sense of who these leaders in verse 7 were. They were the missionary pastors who boldly evangelized this community and helped to plant this congregation. Or to put it very simply, these were the people who first preached the gospel to them. That's who the leaders in verse 7 are. They have since gone on to be with the Lord, so it seems. That's why there's all this past tense language. They've since gone on to be with the Lord, but their lives and their teaching must not be forgotten. The author's goal, however, is more than remembrance. His goal is imitation. Look at the last line of the verse. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Now at this point, it is incredibly significant we understand what specifically about their lives was worthy of imitation. You've got to pay close attention to the text at this point. It was not their personality. Spiritual leadership has nothing to do with personality. It was not their personality. It was not their zeal or their fervor or their boldness. What does the author say? Imitate their faith. Their faith. You see, these leaders here in verse 7 are like the heroes of faith from chapter 11. Their lives were a model of perseverance. They not only proclaimed the Word of God, they then believed that Word all the way to the end. So you can think of it like this. Their preaching of the Gospel was confirmed by their perseverance in the Gospel. That's always how it works for faithful leaders and teachers. Their preaching is confirmed by their life. That's why the author can say, consider the outcome of their life, because that outcome was a testimony of faithful endurance. They persevered to the end. Now, before we go on at this point, I want to pause here to commend to you the study of Christian history and Christian testimony. The author is talking about remembering the lives of people who have gone on, people who are past. So I want to commend to you the study of Christian history and Christian testimony. There is a reason God has providentially preserved for us so many testimonies of His people, both in Scripture and in the history of the church. And that reason is our encouragement. There is an element of imitation in Christian discipleship. There is a place for studying the life of faithful saints and asking questions like, what was important to him? How did she use her time? Where did he devote his energy and his effort? Often, the Lord will use their lives to spur us on to teach us 
and even to equip us for the road ahead. So I commend that study to you. Don't get caught up only in things that are happening right now. Maybe pick up a biography on a Christian whom you've always admired or a Christian that you've always heard about but you don't know much regarding their life. Over the Christian break, I read a biography of John Newton, the slave trader turned pastor and hymn writer. It was incredibly encouraging. Part of it was because Newton pastored a small church and he just kind of kept going Sunday after Sunday, even though it was small. That seemed relevant to me. It was encouraging. So I commend to you such a study. Nothing should replace your study of God's Word. That's not what I'm saying. No one should compare with the example of the Lord Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But there is value in learning from the lives of those who have gone before us and have been faithful to the end. Now, looking back at our text, you'll see that brings us to the powerful proclamation of verse 8. And I love here how the author weaves in the incredible truth of verse 8 right into the practical example of verse 7. Notice how it works. The past leaders have gone on, yet their testimony endures. How is that possible? They're not there to give any more testimony. So how does it keep going? How can their lives be an example, even though they are no longer present? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's how. You see why the leaders were worthy of imitation? Not because they were so great, but because they made much of the unchanging Christ. I pray we do not miss this point. The past leaders are gone, but the Christ whom they proclaimed remains forever. Do you want your life to count? I want my life to count. Do you want to live in such a way that verse 7 could be said about you that your faith was worthy of imitation. Just, just try to picture that for a moment. Your life is over. It's your funeral. They're saying things about you. And one of the things they say is, this brother's faith was worthy to be imitated. This sister's faith was worthy to be followed. Do you want that? I want that. Then use your life to make much of Christ. That's what this verse is saying. Use your life to make much of Christ. How do I do that, Pastor? That sounds high-minded. How do I do that? It's not high-minded. Hold fast to Jesus and trust Him, especially when the trials and storms of life are raging. That shows the world Christ is trustworthy. Focus your time on knowing Him and serving Him and making Him known. That shows the world Christ is worthy to be pursued. Use your resources, your money, your skills, your gifts, your time to further His Gospel. That shows the world Christ is more valuable than those resources. That He is your great treasure, not the things that you have. In all of these ways and many more, make much of Christ. When we live that way, we do two things. We follow the example of those who have gone before us and then we leave behind an ongoing example that's worthy of that same Christ-exalting imitation. So if you, want to make much of, if you want to make your life count, then make much of Christ. As the passage continues, the author gives us another way to live in light of Christ's supremacy. Look at verse 9 where we see Christ-exalting discernment. Christ-exalting discernment. Here the author exhorts us to be on guard against anything that would take us away from the Lord Jesus. This is the necessary application 
of Christ's supremacy. Since Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, we should be vigilant against anything that minimizes or diminishes Him. Notice how the author puts it in verse 9. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Those descriptions, diverse and strange, are significant. The idea is something unknown or something crafty that captures your thinking and then carries you away from Christ. Recognize, friends, this is the common thread across all false teaching. It will minimize the person and work of Christ. It's the common thread across all false doctrine. Take legalism, for example. It minimizes the cross of Christ by elevating our own works as a means of justification. Or Mormonism, that deceptive cult that denies Jesus' eternal deity and then denies that salvation is found only in Him. Or the prosperity gospel, which reduces the Lord Jesus to little more than a means for us to get what we want. More cars, more health, more money, more power, more whatever. You see the pattern? It holds true across every false teaching. It will minimize the person and work of Christ. And therefore, brothers and sisters, the practice of discernment begins right here with a high view of Christ that we never let go. The author is urging us to be a discerning people, to be careful about the ideas we take into our minds. Remember, friends, the life of the mind is a vital component of Christian discipleship. Ideas are not neutral. Ideas have consequences. And therefore, part of faithfully following Christ is discerning what we take into our minds, what we believe and what we think and what we meditate on. The mind is the pathway to the heart, and from the heart flows out to the hands. You've got to be discerning. It's more than just ideas. So let me ask you, are you careful about the things you take into your minds? I'm afraid many Christians are often so focused on their experience and their emotions, they forget about the mind, what they believe and what they think. Is that true of you? Are you discerning about what you read and what you listen to and what you watch and what you think? Ideas are not neutral. They have consequences in our lives and how we act and what we love and what we live for. In fact, I'll make a case, and I'm going to stand on it pretty strongly, that if you have an area of your life where your living is out of whack with the Bible, there's a wrong idea down there somewhere. It's not just doing the wrong stuff. It's believing the wrong things which produce wrong affections which manifest themselves in wrong actions. You want to change how you live? Change what you think. Romans chapter 12, when Paul is urging his readers in Romans to be changed, he says, be transformed by what? The renewing of your minds. Not the changing of your behavior. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What you believe. So we need to hear the exhortation of verse 9, and we need to be people who cultivate discernment. Now, if you look again at the verse, you'll see the author is not finished with with this issue. He goes on to give us a further explanation that shows us why discernment is good for God's people. Notice the last half of verse 9. For it is good... For the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods 
which have not benefited those devoted to them. You'll notice the author contrasts two things that don't normally go together. Grace and food. That's a strange pair. You might expect it to say grace and law, but it doesn't. It says grace and food. So what is he getting at? Well, consider the context of the letter. The author is writing to Christians from a Jewish background who are tempted to go back to the practices of the Old Covenant. And some of those Old Covenant practices concerned specific food restrictions, things you could and could not eat. But here's the important point. Those Old Covenant food restrictions were insufficient. They were merely external. They provided no lasting benefit because they had no real power to deal with the problem of sin. You can't make atonement for sin by not eating shellfish. It doesn't work that way. There's only one thing that can get to the heart, and that is the grace of God. So when the author contrasts grace and food, he's actually contrasting two covenants. The old covenant and the new. He's saying, in effect, don't go back to that old covenant. Those old practices are of no value because they cannot get to the core of who you are. They cannot strengthen your heart. Then, in verses 10-12, through 12, the author does something very helpful. He reminds us where we can find this heart-strengthening grace. It does not come from any sacrifice we offer. It comes only through the finished work of Christ. This is an incredibly important part of his argument. And it's short, but it's powerful. So I'm just going to kind of go verse by verse, real, real brief here. Try to follow along with me and see how the author unpacks where we find this grace. Verse 10, Believers do not come to the altar of the old covenant where animals were offered repeatedly again and again but could never take away sins. We have come by faith to the altar of the new covenant where Christ was sacrificed and He shed His blood once and for all. His sacrifice is better than any food offering or animal sacrifice that was given in the tabernacle. We've come to that altar. Then verse 11, on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, he's talking about Leviticus 16 here in verse 11, the Day of Atonement. On that day, the body of the sacrificial animal was carried outside the camp and burned. It could not be eaten like the other sacrifices because it was unclean on the Day of Atonement. So they burned it outside the camp. Then verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the camp. The author is saying Jesus is the greater atoning sacrifice. He was offered up outside the city of Jerusalem. He is the greater atoning sacrifice. But there's one difference. And this is the climax. Why did Jesus suffer outside the city? Not because He was unclean, but in order to make unclean people clean. Notice the last line. In order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Brothers and sisters, that is the source of God's grace. It comes to us only through the blood of Christ. If we do not talk about the grace of God as rooted in the blood of Christ, then we misrepresent who God is. There is no grace apart from His blood. There is no grace. To embrace the Gospel as we ought, we must see this connection. Our hearts need strength. Strength comes by grace. And grace is found only in the blood of Christ. 
Do you need strength this morning, brothers and sisters? Is your heart weary and weak? Then go to the cross. Go to the cross. Go to that blood-stained, beautiful tree and see in Christ's sacrifice the cleansing of your sin. See in His blood the never-failing grace of God for you. Don't, Don't look for strength in what you have done or not done. Don't look for strength in any other place but in the once for all sacrifice of Christ. And as you look at that cross, be encouraged that His blood will never fail. Even at our weakest, there is strength enough in the cross of Christ. If all you can do is whisper the desperate prayer, Lord Jesus, help me, I can barely lift my head. If that's all you can muster, then be encouraged. There is strength enough for you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. There is strength enough for you. That is why we sing that old Gospel hymn, Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood shall never lose its power. That's not some hymn writer being sentimental. That's the Bible. Christ is unchanging. His sacrifice endures forever. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. There is strength enough for you at the cross. That brings us to verses 13 and 14 where we see the third way we should live in light of Jesus' supremacy. Christ-exalting devotion. Christ-exalting devotion. Imitation, discernment, now devotion. In verse 13, the author picks up the imagery of going outside the camp, and he uses it as a metaphor for the Christian life. Notice what he writes. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. The key here is recognizing the symbolism of that phrase, outside the camp. Outside the camp was a place of disgrace. It was a place of shame. If you were ostracized from the community, you were exiled outside the camp. Remember when Miriam and Aaron opposed Moses' leadership and so God caused Miriam to get leprosy? Where did she go? Outside the camp. It's a place of shame. That's part of what made Jesus' Crucifixion such a horrendous moment because it took place outside the city. It symbolized His being cut off and cast out from the people of God. So, when the author tells us to go to Jesus outside the camp, he's telling us to endure whatever the cost in order to identify with Christ. So verse 13 means, endure whatever the cost in order to identify with Christ. Go where He is, even if it's outside the camp. It's the same call Jesus gave His disciples. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. It's the the same call. The call to endure the, the cost of discipleship. So may we never forget, brothers and sisters, that following Jesus means we will endure disgrace for the sake of His name. This is a reminder and a correction we need to hear again and again. We are not promised good standing in the world's eyes. I'm all about being salt and light in our neighborhoods. I'm all about engaging the lost world with the truth of Christ. But as we do that, we need to recognize that we shouldn't expect them to like us 
Our character should be commendable. Yes, absolutely. We should be above reproach. There should be no legitimate thing they could point to you and say, yeah, but look what He does then. None of that. But even still, we shouldn't expect them to just respond with unregenerate minds and hearts and say, yeah, you know what? That's good. That's good. Thank you for pointing that out. Your life looks good to me. That's not going to happen. Most of the people Jesus interacted with in His life hated Him. That's why they murdered Him. And Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So, I understand the impulse. And we need to, we need to emphasize it. Be salt in, in, in the world. Be light in the world. But don't get confused and expect, and expect that to mean that people are going to like you for your Christ-centered nature. And also here at the, at the tail end, Sometimes we should probably expect that some of the most vociferous opposition is going to come from people who claim to be the most religious. This week I heard a Christian recording artist, I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to disparage him unnecessarily, but a Christian recording artist say in, in a tweet, because those are really significant, he said in a tweet, um, I, wish, I wish artists would find something better to sing about than a father murdering his son. That's heresy. So if you were to go to that guy and be like, man, we gotta, we got to make much of the blood of Christ. He's not going to like you. So we should hear this correction that the place of following Jesus is outside the camp. If our Christianity does not have room for that kind of cost of discipleship, then we don't understand the Gospel as we ought. To follow Christ means we go to Him outside the camp, bearing the reproach He endured. Now, that sounds hard, doesn't it? If we're honest, when we hear this teaching, part of us recoils. It does for me. I would prefer the easier road. I like things easy. We prefer the easier road. We keep hoping there is actually some way we can serve two masters. (laughs) Some way we can follow Jesus without having to pay this cost outside the camp. And that's why God in His mercy and kindness gives us verse 14. The author reminds us why going outside the camp is absolutely worth it. Notice what he writes. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Imagine if for a short moment God peeled back the fog of this world and allowed you to see things for what they truly are. Imagine if God allowed you to see this world from His perspective, from the perspective of eternity. What would you see? You would see that the life of comfort and ease is a mirage. All the pleasures of this world are like elaborate sandcastles. They look magnificent now, but when the tide of eternity rolls in, they're washed away and there's nothing left. And what about life outside the camp, that place of shame and reproach? What does that place look like from God's perspective? It looks like the road to the heavenly city. And so, we go outside the camp, and there we follow the trail Jesus has blazed for us, the trail of faith that brings us all the way to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. So yes, the cost of discipleship is high. I'm not going to minimize that. It is high, it is hard, it is difficult. It's costly. But the end is worth it. The end is the kingdom of God where Christ will reign forever. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
Therefore, we live with Christ-exalting devotion going outside the camp seeking the city that is to come. And so the passage reaches the conclusion, verses 15 and 16, where we see one final way to live in light of Jesus' supremacy, Christ-exalting sacrifice. Christ-exalting sacrifice. You'll notice both verse 15 and verse 16 mention sacrifices to God. Right? Verse 15 says sacrifice at the beginning. Verse 16 says sacrifice at the end. It's like a little bookend. If you've been with us throughout Hebrews, that should get your attention. When the author says, offer God a sacrifice, that should get your attention. The entire book of Hebrews has been about the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. I've stood up here and said, there are no more sacrifices required of God's people. And that's true. Christ has done all the work through the shedding of His blood. So when the author calls us to offer a sacrifice, we should immediately ask, what exactly does He mean? And the remainder of the verses gives us the answer. The author's not talking about a sacrifice of atonement. He's talking... He's calling us to a sacrifice of praise and service. That's the command of verses 15 and 16. Praise God and serve His people. If you had to condense it down, that's it. Praise God, serve His people. When we open our mouths and declare there is nothing I could have done to save myself, Christ has done it all. When we offer that kind of praise, that is a pleasing sacrifice to God for it magnifies His grace. And when we do good to God's people by sharing what God has provided, we offer a pleasing sacrifice for it shows that we love what God loves, those who belong to Him. So friends, I don't want to sound simplistic here, but I do want us to see the simplicity of this exhortation. It's not complex. Do you want to offer God something that pleases Him? Something that He receives with glad acceptance? Then praise Him for His grace and serve His people. It sounds simple, and to some degree it is, but these are not small things. Too, too often, I'm afraid, we, we belittle praise and service by how we think about them. We tend to think of such things as duties or tasks we have to do, or else our heavenly taskmaster is going to be mad at us. But that mindset belittles God and magnif- misses the magnitude of what is happening here. When we gather to praise God and serve one another, the heart of God rejoices. That's an incredible thought. That the Almighty God would be glad to receive our humble offering this morning. Think of how that should change your perspective on something like coming to church or gathering to pray with fellow believers or being involved in a fellow Christian's life. Those things are not duties. They're not just tasks that you're trying to do to make sure God doesn't get cross with you. Those are offerings to God. Sacrifices that bring joy to His heart. Look, I cannot think of a greater motivation to be about the things of God than this. I I can't fathom a more powerful drive for service. This kind of life, with all of its faithful simplicity, a life of praise and a life of service, pleases the living God. So if you want to please God with your life, then praise Him for His grace and serve His people. As we conclude our time this morning, there's one final observation that I want to point out to us. It helps us prepare for the Lord's table, which is where we'll come in just a moment. Notice the very first phrase of verse 15. Through Him. Through Christ. 
at the end of all of our service, there is only one thing that enables us to live lives that please God. And that is the sacrifice of Christ. Our praise is through Him. Our service is through Him. Indeed, the entirety of our lives is through Him. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so, until our Lord comes again, we eat and we drink from His table, remembering His sacrifice. We gather to praise. We gather to serve. And we do so with great anticipation, looking forward to the day when we will feast with Him in the city that is to come. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the unrivaled Christ. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. There is no one like Him. We confess to You, Father, that our hearts are often weak in love and in worship for Christ. Our hearts are often weak in devotion. And that's why, Father, we take such comfort from the fact that Christ has done all that is necessary to save and redeem His people. Give us grace now, Father, to make much of Him with our lives. Give us grace, Father, to live with faith that is worthy of imitation. Give us grace, Father, to endure His reproach, looking forward to the city that is to come. Give us grace to praise Your name and serve Your people until the day when Christ returns. We pray this, Father, in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing.